to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 7. The first four parts of this study are up online, calvarycolook.org or .com, whatever one you want to look at. But we're back in the feasting here. We're back. Edict's been put out by Haman by effectively sort of convincing King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, depending on which translation you're in. Um, that these strange people that are amongst them uh, should be done away with and so there was an edict put out to destroy basically destroy the Jews and Esther has been asked by Mordecai her cousin to go to the king and seek a pardon for the people now I'm not sure whether I made this clear or not earlier but Haman disguised the name of the people that he was coming against in Esther chapter 3 he just said that they were a, a peculiar people, a strange people with, with, with their own laws and their own situations and it, it wouldn't be beneficial to the king to allow them to exist and so the king had allowed, had allowed uh, Haman to, to write an edict basically the annihilation of the Jews he knew Haman knew that Mordecai was a Jew and of course Mordecai was a sworn enemy because Haman was an Amalekite but the thing here is if we get into this chapter is what you've got to understand here is that Haman didn't know that Esther was a Jew Esther had been promoted to the position of queen and I can't go over all that this morning but you need to catch up with the study yourself so Haman disguised the name of the people that he wanted to kill so that he could get the edict written by the king King Xerxes doesn't even know that Esther's a Jew. Mordecai, in his wisdom, had told her, don't reveal your identity to anyone at this point in time. So we're in that situation where Haman knows, and King Xerxes knows, that Mordecai is a Jew. But none of the two of them realise that Esther's a Jew also. And so we've come to this point where Esther has planned a feast, she has... She has invited the king and Haman, and Haman really, you know, right up there, you know, big-headed Haman. He's ready for this feast. There's only him and the king been invited by Queen Esther. And of course Esther just teases him along a bit and says, well, king, the king asks her, what is your desire? What's your petition? And she says, well, if you all come back tomorrow, I'll tell you. So of course, as we spoke about last week, the king didn't sleep. He couldn't sleep that night. And I found it, I did find it quite interesting that here was the one who commanded 127 satraps and, and areas, and yet he couldn't command 10 minutes of sleep. You know, it's just God gives sleep to those whom he desires. So here we are. The second day the feast has arrived. The king couldn't sleep. He said, the guy to read the, the chronicles to him, and in that chronicle it tells them that, that uh, Mordecai had, had given help to the king in, in exposing a plan to kill the king. So Haman has been ordered to honour Mordecai. And Haman's just back for that situation. He's just walked Haman, he's just walked Mordecai around the town on a horse, proclaiming this is what happens to the one who would honour the king. And we don't even know at this stage whether Esther actually knows what's happened to Mordecai. Because immediately Haman went home and was brought right back to the palace to enter into this second feast with Esther and King Xerxes. And so we're at the start of chapter 7. 
So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. As they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Now that's a proverbialism if you want to call it. I mean, he wouldn't give her half the kingdom. But uh, it, it illustrates the kind of depth to which the king would go to honour the queen. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Hester shows that wisdom that God gives her here. She didn't immediately self, show herself to be a Jew or part of a group singled out for slaughter by Haman. Just as Haman himself had not identified the group to King Xerxes either. But here's the wonderful thing with Esther. It's not the fact that <coughs> she goes in pleading for her people. She goes in on a personal basis pleading to the king. It's for my own life that I ask you for because she knows that in all her dealings with King Xerxes she has never done anything but what was right so the king has no reason to have a grudge against her the king has no reason to say well you've been bad, you did this, you did that so she's put it out there Esther appeals on her personal basis the whole horrifying result for Haman is that he suddenly realises that Esther's a Jew I appeal for myself for my own life and for the people whom I am part of now if it wasn't bad enough for Haman they had to take Mordecai around the town in a robe and a, in the back of a horse and proclaim him to be the king's honoured guest or honoured man now he's faced with the prospect that he's put out an edict to kill the queen because that's basically what it is he's put a he set himself up to murder the queen and I don't know that King Xerxes would be too happy about it and Esther says to him to the king you know if we'd merely been sold as slaves I wouldn't bother you king because it would be a triviality compared to what's happening now if we were merely been sold as slaves it would be bad enough and remember this was a bribery situation <clears throat> that Mordecai had offered King Xerxes literally 240 million American dollars in today's money he would put that in the treasury if he signed the edict that would allow Haman to destroy the Jews now Haman wouldn't have that kind of money but he would certainly get it from the slaughtered Jews that would be left lying around so King Xerxes at verse 5 asked Queen Esther who is he? where is he? the man who has dared to do such a thing so the king's outraged who is he says the king in some measure doesn't realise at this point in time that it was him who granted the order he was the one who gave Haman his ring and said I just go and do what you like with us strange people that you're talking about and Esther said to him in verse 5 an adversary and an enemy this vile Haman it's always good to face up your problems Esther was in a situation where she could have gone to the king privately 
and, and told him about Haman and all the rest of it. But she decided that the best way forward and the way that God would have it done is to face the man who would be our murderer, the man who would be the destroyer of our people. And I said this last week, you know, when, we're, when we encounter problems with people, it should always be face to face. Let's get them sorted out face to face. It can't be Facebook to Facebook. It must be face to face. And then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage. He left his wine and went out to the palace gardens. But Haman, realising that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. So this Haman that King Xerxes thought was a great guy, he'd almost promoted him to being prime minister of the land. He was not a faithful servant. He was a self-promoter. He flattered to deceive. He would tell King Xerxes anything he wanted as long as he got his own way. He was such a coward in some measure that when, when faced down with the problem with Mordecai, when asked to honour Mordecai, he never once raised any objection. He just did what the king asked him to do, hoping that he could wheedle his way out of the situation he'd found himself in. I suppose at this point in time, King Xerxes realised that Haman had used him to promote his own ends. Haman realised that the Jewish people within the Persian state were a very, very prosperous, rich and, and advantageous people. And he thought, if I can get rid of these people, I can get all their wealth and I only have to pay $240 million to the king for it. So imagine the money he was making if he could afford to get rid of $250 million. You know, and there's something in this for us and, 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 a, and a, I suppose in some measure a, a Christian situation or a leadership situation the king was very very quick to promote Haman into the position that he was in because he was a flatterer he flattered to deceive he would do anything that would please the king just so they could get in the king's books and we've got to be careful of that within the church be careful use a bit of discernment the Bible tells us quite distinctly not to lay hands on anyone suddenly People may come into your church or into your fellowship group or, or even into your group of friends who in some measure they sound very good and they flatter to deceive and they'll pay you all the compliments in the world but all they want to do is just use you. So be careful. Lay hands on no man suddenly. Don't, and, and, and that I mean, I don't mean a punch up or whatever. I just mean to put that blessing upon them to put them into some sort of position where they can manipulate situations. Make sure that we know the character of people, that we take it in prayer before the Lord, before we, we lay hands on somebody and say, would you like to do this or do that within the fellowship or within our own personal lives? So anyway, the king gets up and leaves in a rage out in the palace gardens. Haman is terrified. Queen Esther will be sitting there quite smug on a nice Persian couch, you know, and all her robes and her royal robes on and the, the hangings on the wall. You can imagine the opulence of the place. And there's Haman, a total nervous wreck at this point in time. And at verse 8 it says, Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. It would appear here that Haman had literally tried to throw himself on the queen's mercy. He got up from his own chair and whether his legs had given way because of the fright that was within him or whether he tripped, we don't know, but he seems to have fallen across Queen Esther just as the king came back in. Now, 
To understand what was happening in Persia in these days, if you even laid hands on the queen, if you even bumped into her, it could cost you your life. You were just were not allowed to touch any of the women that belonged to the king. In fact, many of the people, when the king and the queen were in, were in a, a joint, if you want to call it, receiving mode, many of those who were brought in to, to see them were actually to keep their heads down so that they could not look upon the queen. So this, in some measure, when he, it almost looked as if he was a saltner across the couch, and just at that the king came back in. So you can imagine, you know, just the rage of the king just going exponential. I found this and it was, I thought it was quite amusing. There's a Jewish tradition that says that just as the king came back into the, into the chamber, the angel Gabriel pushed Haman so that, he, so that he fell across the queen just in case he didn't trip properly. We'll just give him a wee shove. And I thought that was quite... You know, and in some measure it wouldn't surprise me. God's hand was in this whole situation all the time. I mean, we talk about it and we laugh that the angel Gabriel was there. But I don't know whether the angel Gabriel's here this morning. <clears throat> he may well be. I know there are many angels in this place this morning. And I'm not talking about you guys. <laughs> but there are many angels. There are angels all around us. And so, although we take that as a bit of light-hearted uh, banter, who knows? And the king exclaimed... Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in this house? Haman effectively, with this act, they fallen on the queen or whatever, he'd signed his own death warrant. And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So in preparation for death, if the king couldn't see him, then he was considered already dead. That was what they did. They just... The, the, the eunuchs that were there, the, the courtiers that were there, as soon as the king said, will this man even assault the queen? Because they knew that to assault the queen, to lay hands on the queen was a death sentence. I mean, it was just a given. Uh, so the bag was over his head, literally, at that point in time, and, and he was condemned to death. Then Harbona, verse 9, one of the eunuchs attending the king said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. So the gallows, if you want to call it, or this impaling pole that was prepared for Mordecai is now the end of Haman. You know, and God often works this way. We see it in Psalm 7. Let me read you verses 14 to 17 from Psalm 7. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. So the king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. So we remember the situation, the pointy pole that you were sat on top of and then weights were hung on your feet and the pole was dragged up through you literally. So that was the, it was a precursor to crucifixion in some measure. It was, a, it was an early form of excruciating death. And of course, if we know, those of you that are scholars of grammar, excruciate comes from the word to crucify. Um, 
the, the, the pain and the agony so you can imagine the pain and the agony of this and what I thought about here was that you know here was a the death of a substitute satisfied the wrath of a king but in this case the death of the substitute the substitute for the Jews in some measure was, was Haman but he was guilty so that was the right way around the guilty died for the innocent but God's wrath for us was satisfied by the death of the innocent for the guilty we deserve to die and yet God in his mercy took the punishment upon himself so that same day at the start of chapter 8 King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman the enemy of the Jews and Mordecai came into the presence of the king for Esther had told how he was related to her the king took off his signet ring which he had reclaimed from Haman and presented it to Mordecai and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate suddenly things change suddenly out of what seems absolute disaster things change Haman how hard he had schemed how hard he had worked to get where he was this is a Haman who thought he was climbing the ladder of success and then suddenly realised it was up against the wrong wall and that's often the case with God we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and nothing seems to happen and then suddenly God moves just suddenly it happens we see the situation with Moses and the children of Israel at the Red Sea Moses had been faithful to all that God had asked them to do and they found themselves backed up against the Red Sea they found themselves with, with cliffs and ravines on either side of them and just this one wee dry wadi coming down and of course Haman, uh, Pharaoh's army is coming down there to get them their backs are to the sea there's nowhere to run right or left and suddenly God moves lift your staff and hold it out across the waters and I'll part the waters for you suddenly God moves and then we look at King David King David who was only a boy 16 or 17 year old he's out tending sheep but was, was open to the things that God would have him do and probably wondering Lord what is it you want me to do is it, is it, have I to be a shepherd all my life if that's the case that's fine but then suddenly Samuel appears in the scene and looks at all Jesse's sons and says nah have you no more only the boy he's at the back looking after the sheep bring him in and as soon as he was brought in Samuel said this is the one suddenly the whole game changed for David he was suddenly no longer a shepherd he was now the anointed king of Israel although that wouldn't happen for another 17 years but the things that God puts into your life may not happen immediately but suddenly they will suddenly God will move you know we look at the great writer of the New Testament Paul, Paul the Apostle Saul of Tarsus he was going about at hammer and tongs he thought he was doing God's will he was persecuting the Christians he was putting them to death and suddenly God appeared to him on the road to Damascus Total, changed his life totally put his life round the other way round you know when we see this we should live our lives after the way Solomon put it in the last couple of verses Ecclesiastes he said this now all has been heard here is the conclusion of the matter fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind for God will bring every deed into judgment 
including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So Esther again pleaded with the king here at verse 3, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. Once more she puts her life in the line here. She has basically got a partial reprieve in the sense that no longer is Haman going to be alive in, in Shushan or Susa, depending again on the translation, in this citadel city. She's rescued her own life, but her own people are still in great danger. <clears throat> and she pleads with the king, if it pleases the king, she said, and if it regards me with favour and thinks it is right to, the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Esther gets before the king and he asks, she asks for the impossible. She asks him to revoke the decree. And it can't be done. No edict that was issued by a Persian or a Median king could be revoked. It stood. You see an example of that quite clearly in Daniel. When the king there had put an edict out that anyone who would not bow down and worship him or who worshipped another god at that point in time would be put to death by thrown into the lion's den. And the king signed the edict. And then of course all these people who were manipulating the situation caught Daniel at prayer. And the king was forced to throw him into the lion's den. And of course we know the outcome. That God rescued him from the mouth of the lion. But the king at that point in time, in Daniel's life, he had spent the whole night sleepless as well because he really loved Daniel. But he couldn't revoke the edict that he had issued. So Esther asked the impossible. You know, and I sometimes think of this, when I look at this, I think, don't be frightened to ask God for the impossible. God can grant you the impossible. There is nothing impossible to God. Don't settle for second best. Don't put God in a box and say, well, God can do this much, but he can't do that. God can do all things. You may not think it, and you may not get it the way you want it, but suddenly, God will do it. And it's a plea from the heart here from Esther. It's full of tears and emotion. Grant me this wish, King. Grant me this, King Xerxes. You know, when we're in our own prayer place, it may not happen in public, and it may not happen in just small prayer groups but within our own place there should be emotion in our prayers some of the greatest prayers are the wet prayers the tears flow and the pillows are wet and God where are you I need you so don't be frightened to show emotion when, when you get into a prayer situation because that just shows you, you know, a relationship that you have with each other, a relationship that you have with God. A relationship isn't a relationship unless there is emotion involved. There has to be something. It would be a senseless situation if you were married to someone and never spoke to them, never touched them, never kissed them, never said anything to them. I mean, it would be totally emotionless. We cry with each other and we 
laugh with each other and so we should do in a relationship with Christ as well he understands our hearts we might have expected this plea long ago from Esther or at least four or five days ago but Esther has now removed the head of the snake Haman has been chopped off but the rest of it is still kind of wriggling about a bit so we get to verse 7 here and it says King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew because Haman attacked the Jews I have given his estate to Esther and they have impaled him on the pole he set up now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked at once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month the month of Sivan they wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush these orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as a law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out spurred on by the king's command and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. You know, we might think, and probably do, we can. We can see Haman as a type of Satan. And we wait for the day when he finally puts an end to him. In some measure the head's been cut off by the cross at Calvary. But there's still that wriggly bit of snake that's left. And yet we must still deal with the righteous decree of God. Exodus 18 and 4 says that the soul that sins must die. There's no getting away from that. God's decrees are immutable. They cannot be changed. They cannot be reversed. But God solves the problem for us not by compromise, but as we said earlier, by taking our punishment on Him. And by doing that, He maintains His righteousness. In this situation, a counter-decree is issued allowing the Jews to defend themselves. So it's issued for the time that Haman had wanted to destroy the Jews, which was away in the 12th month of Adar. There was an urgency to get this degree, decree out, and so, so should we have an urgency to get our king's message out as well. A message that we know was written in blood for everybody, that God will defend them in the day of retribution. You know, we talk about now being in the end times. We talk about things out of the New Testament when we see the, the, the sort of 
the Olivet Discourse, etc. by Jesus when he talks about, you know, you'll know the end times. You can tell the signs of the weather. When you see a red sky at night, you, you know it's going to be a good day the next day. Well, look as well when you see wars and rumours of wars and earthquakes and natural disasters. These are the birth pangs of, of the end. So, I'm always intrigued by the speed at which these messages went because we're talking here about two and a half thousand years ago. And in Daniel 12, in verse 4, during that great prophecy, he talks about the end times. He says, you know, there'll be a real rise in, in, at that time in the end times. There'll be a real rise in, in knowledge amongst mankind. So this situation, two and a half thousand years ago, what did people eat two and a half thousand years ago? What they could grow? There's nothing, there's no e-numbers or whatever, you know, additives or you just ate what you grew, if you grew wheat you ate wheat if you grew barley you ate barley, if you grew turnips you ate turnips and that, that was basically it and what did they make their clothes out of? wool, whatever again, whatever they could grow off the animals the wool or linen or, or flax or jute or whatever they could grow, they, they made their clothes out of that and how did they send messages? They got the fastest horses or the fastest camels they could find. They wrote it down with some ink and a piece of parchment, rolled it up and sent the guys off as fast as they would go. You know, if you come forward, I was thinking about where we come forward to. The Battle of Waterloo in 1815. 1815. It was the 18th of June, 1815. When the Duke of Wellington's army and the Seventh Coalition lined up against Napoleon. And of course, we know the result of the battle. The battle was that Napoleon was defeated and eventually exiled to live in St. Helena until he died in 1821. But in the battle in 1815, what did the guys eat? What they could grow? They grew corn and they grew wheat and they grew barley and they grew grapes and whatever the same as they did in Esther's time what did they wear? whatever they could make up off the animals or, or grow flax or whatever it is and make clothes out of it or linen cotton, whatever the same as they did in Esther's time now I want you to come forward now that's us jumped forward from Esther's time 2,300 years to Napoleon I want you to come forward 200 years to today what do we eat? Anything. You name it, we can make it. All these preservatives and all these e-numbers, no problems. How did they send messages around the battlefield in Waterloo? They got on a fast horse. They took messages for, for the Duke of Wellington and down to his colonels, etc. So nowadays, we make our, what do we make our clothes out of? Anything you like. Anything you want. Such is the rise in the amount of knowledge that men have. We can now make you clothes that don't wear out. I mean, they make spacesuits now for, for these spacemen, these astronauts. And the clothes will last hundreds of years. They just can't wear out. You can't burn a hole in them. You can't shoot a hole in them. You, you just can't wear them out. But of course, commercially, that wouldn't be very proper. Um, you can't have everybody wearing the same suit to the same wedding all the time, you know. And women wouldn't be very happy with that if they only got one dress and said, well, you'll have that because that doesn't wear out. But the point I'm trying to make here is, Daniel's prophecy said that in these end times there would be a massive rise in knowledge. 
How do we send messages today? Instantly. We don't need a fast horse and a pen and paper. And it's, that has, I mean, in some measure, over the last 20 years, that has become the norm. Children who are growing up today don't know what it is to post a letter. In fact, I'm always reminded of the story about Craig Brown, the old Scotland manager, when they told him that he was, be, you know, he was going to have to go on Twitter and post a few messages and that because that was the modern way to do things. So he puts this on, he says, This is Craig Brown here. I wish all the Scotland supporters in the Tartan Army all the best. Do you think the post office will still be open so I can post it? <laughs> anyway. If you're up to date, you're... <laughs> so nowadays we can do everything. So how do we know we're in the end times? The rise in knowledge that Daniel prophesied. That's one of the things that you can know. Do you know that over half the scientists who have ever lived have lived in the last 110 years? Such is the rise in knowledge. I mean... This knowledge, if you drew a graph, it would come across here for, for Esther's time. And it wouldn't get much bigger, even up to Napoleon's time. And then all of a sudden, whoosh, in the last 200 years we've had this exponential rise in knowledge. Anyway, let's finish the chapter. When Mordecai left the king's presence at verse 15, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of, robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa or Shushan held a joyous celebration. For the Jews it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the Egypt of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many of the other nationalities became Jews, because fear of the Jews had seized them. The king goes further than he's asked to go. Not only does this edict get issued, which allows the Jews to defend themselves, but he now appoints Mordecai, the Jew, to be the prime minister of the land instead of Haman. And you look at this situation and you see, when the Gentiles saw God working on behalf of his people, the Jews, they too wanted to be Jews. You know, and we'll finish with this, when people see Jesus in our lives, if they see the love of Jesus coming from us, if they see the, the wisdom and the understanding that God gives us, hopefully they'll come to us and want to become part of Jesus' family as well. We should be living our lives in such a way that it becomes attractive to people. Such was the joy, such was the, the gladness, such was the happiness of these Jews that people wanted to be part of it. And that should be where we are. Not of people who are standing with downturned heads, worried minds. But of people who know we're in the end times. And we know it because we can prove it out of scripture. We don't know when the end will come, but we know we're in the end times. Such are the things that God is doing. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to ask God for the impossible. Don't be afraid if it doesn't come immediately because suddenly God will bring it in his time so be encouraged this morning be like Esther put yourself out there God will honour you God will not see you put down to no purpose Esther pleaded for her people with tears and emotion if you want to see your family and your friends saved maybe we should start to 
appeal to God with a bit more emotion as if we really wanted them saved let's pray Father we just thank you and praise you for this good day we thank you for your word Lord we thank you for the lesson that's there from Esther Lord that even although your name's never mentioned in this book Lord or neither is praise or worship or, or anything Lord or prayer and yet Lord in the background you're all over it Lord you're the one who guided and directed Mordecai and Esther Lord and you're the one the same God who guides and directs us today so Lord use us use us mightily Lord, whatever it is we have to do, help us to do it, Lord. Whatever it is we have to use, that gift that you've given us, help it to use it to your glory. Lord, part us with your blessing and keep us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. If anybody would like prayer this morning, we can pray with you.